Before I begin the episode, I wish to include a warning. The following episode may include content that is disturbing to some listeners. It focuses around the unsolved murder of a child and the terrible conditions he was found in. If this is the sort of thing that might upset you, I advise you to listen instead to an alternative episode. For those that remain, the episode begins. It's an unsolved murder that's lasted for over 60 years. It's always a tragedy when the young are snatched from us, but this particular case is especially upsetting. Still unnamed to this day, this poor boy is only known as America's unknown child. Despite a small mountain of circumstantial evidence and witness testimonies, no arrests have ever been made. Today, we shine a light on this terrible mystery and ask, who killed the boy in the box? Welcome once again, dearest listener, to Charnel FM. For those that are joining us for the first time, here at Charnel FM we try to bring you anything and everything aimed at raising the hairs on the back of your neck. My little radio station is claustrophobic. It's definitely a product of its time up here on the Cornish Hill. I've never been one to avoid confined and tight spaces, but today it's weighing on my mind a little. It actually reminded me of this particular topic of terror that I wish to talk to you about today. Though I will warn you beforehand, this bizarre, unsolved mystery focuses on the murder of a young boy, so listener discretion is advised if this is the sort of thing that might upset you. I want to talk to you all about a sad and sombre story. A baffling, unsolved murder involving America's unknown child, who was found stuffed into a cardboard box on the side of a Philadelphia road. The crime scene was scoured by over 270 police recruits, but despite a large amount of evidence and a number of theories, no arrests were ever made. Today, we'll speak of the boy in the box. In February of 1957, an unnamed trapper was cycling down Susquehanna Road in Philadelphia. He was on his way to check on his traps and see if he'd managed to catch any muskrats, but he became distracted when he drove by a particular looking box on the side of the road. It was a cardboard box that would have, when it was sold, contained a bassinet, a cradle designed to hold young babies. The box was laying on its side among the thick underbrush beyond the side of the road. It's unsure how many people had passed it until then, given it a simple glance before being disregarded as a piece of roadside trash and rubbish. It was weather damaged, soggy and bent out of shape from its time out in the elements. For whatever reason, this trapper decided that something was off and he went to investigate. What he found was an incredibly strange crime scene that's puzzled authorities to this day. Within the box was the body of a small and frail boy wrapped in a plaid blanket. The boy's hair was matted and had been cropped, but clumps of his hair were still clinging to his body, which suggests that his hair was cut after he was killed. The boy was severely malnourished, his body thin and fragile, and he was dirty from his exposure to the elements. There were surgical scars on his ankles and groin, and an odd-shaped scar beneath his chin. There was also heavy bruising evident on his legs. The trapper wasn't keen to speak to the police, however. He was worried that they would move or confiscate his traps, so he refused to notify the authorities. The interaction was only verified long after the body was rediscovered. 
The second person that we know of to discover the body was a college student named Frederick Benonis. He spotted a rabbit running off the side of the road and into the underbrush, and knowing that traps were placed in the area, he followed it to try and shoo it away from the dangerous locale. It was at that moment that he stumbled upon the boy in the box. At first examination, he thought that the body was a doll, with a small, tiny frame and the unnatural whiteness of his corpse skin. I wonder if I wouldn't have made the same mistake. Frederick, similar to the trapper, didn't want to speak with the police about it. He feared that reporting the body could see him arrested for a crime he didn't commit, but the issue weighed on his mind. Thankfully, he reported the body to the police the next day, and an investigation was launched. When they first arrived, the police were confident that a verdict and a killer would be found soon. The medical examiner estimated the boy's age to be somewhere between 3 and 7 years old. He stood between 3 and 3 foot 4, weighed only 30 pounds, and had blue eyes. The soles of the boy's feet and his left hand were wrinkled and round, which suggested that he had been submerged in water at some point close to his death. The examiner also determined that he had likely died from blunt force trauma, as there were four round-shaped bruises on his head and his face was drained of blood. His esophagus also contained a dark brown residue, which suggested that he'd vomited just before his death. His fingerprints were recorded, and pictures were taken and distributed among the public. It launched the case into the media's eye, and it quickly became a high-profile case overnight. Over 400,000 flyers with the boy's likeness were sent out, and one was included with every gas bill in Philadelphia. Despite it all, unfortunately, nobody came forward with any useful information. The crime scene was combed over and over again by police and police academy recruits, over 270 of them. They discovered a man's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf, and a man's white handkerchief embroidered with the letter G in its corner. They also found long brown hair that didn't belong to the child, and a serial number on the side of the box that led to the local J.C. Penny. Only 12 such bassinets were sold, and while the police managed to track down 8 of them, the lead went cold. When these clues led to little, the police distributed a post-mortem photograph of the boy, fully dressed as he may have looked while he was alive, in the hopes to find someone who might know something. But again, this unfortunately led to nothing. The case has been closed and reopened many times over the years, and despite a swarm of media attention, different investigators, and tips over the years, the case remains unsolved to this day. The unfortunate state of the boy has been attributed to this. A healthy and happy boy will have a vast amount of people looking for the killer, eager to see the criminal brought to justice for snuffing out such a promising young light. But an abandoned and malnourished child, neglected by the system and unwanted, regrettably, not so much. People often just want to forget about it. One of the most popular theories as to the boy's origin and end actually comes from a psychic named Remington Bristow, and involves the local foster home only one and a half miles from where the box was found. While working with the authorities, Bristow described a building that resembled the foster home, and that she believed the boy had died while in their care. She suggested that they search for it, as it was connected to the boy's death, and then led them straight to it. When they arrived at the foster home, they discovered a bassinet similar to the one that would have occupied the cardboard box the boy was found in when it was sold. Freshly washed blankets were hanging on the line outside to dry, blankets that closely resembled the type of played blanket that the boy was wrapped in. 
The foster home was owned by a married couple, and Bristow believed that the boy in the box might have been the child of the couple's stepdaughter born out of wedlock. This was a very serious thing in the 50s that could often utterly ruin a lady's reputation and cripple her opportunities in life, so it's very possible that the family could have hidden the child away. They had the facility and the tools to do so, after all. This could explain the terrible condition that the boy was found in. He was unwanted, unloved, and his presence was only tolerated, which led the family to not taking proper due care of him. When the boy died of an accident, or perhaps after being murdered by an angry relative, the family disposed of him in the box their bassinet had arrived in, so not to expose their stepdaughter as an unwed mother. Lieutenant Tom Augustine, who was in charge of the investigation, interviewed the foster father and stepdaughter, but it seems that they came up dry. Shortly after it, despite the circumstantial evidence, the investigation into the foster home was closed and that particular theory abandoned. Another theory comes from a woman who was only ever identified as Martha, or M. Investigators considered her story plausible, but were put off by her testimony due to her history of mental illness. Another warning, this is where things get a little more graphic. M claimed that she was the daughter of the woman who'd purchased the unknown boy, whose real name was Jonathan, from his parents in 1954, three years before the box was found. The mother was a terribly abusive and vile person, and would subject the boy to extreme abuse, including the sort of grotesque abuse that one can't mention without an explicit not-safe-for-work label, if you catch my meaning. For two and a half years, this poor boy was tortured, until one evening at dinner, he vomited up his meal of baked beans and was given another beating. During such, his head was slammed against a door where he was knocked unconscious, he was forced into a bath to clean the sick off him, but because of his unconsciousness, he drowned in the bathtub. This would explain a number of conditions that the medical examiners found. It would explain the bruises and scarring that he suffered at the hands of the mother, also the wrinkled skin from submersion in water, and the evidence that he had vomited before he died. M states that in an effort to conceal the boy's death and identity, the mother cut his hair after he had died, covered the boy's corpse in a blanket, and bundled him into the bassinet box. She then forced M to assist her in dumping the unknown child's body outside their local area. Unfortunately for the mother, a good Samaritan passed them as they were bundling the box out of the car, and stopped to inquire if they needed help. M's mother demanded that she stand in front of the license plate to shield it from view, lest they be identified later, and convinced the man that everything was fine and that he could continue on his way. This particular tidbit was corroborated later by a male witness in 1957 who states to have been the Good Samaritan that inquired. In spite of the rather damning amount of evidence, the police were unable to verify her story. Friends and neighbours of M's mother stated that her claims were ridiculous, that they had access to the home, and that they and nobody else in the neighbourhood had seen anything from her story. Because of this, this investigation too was closed. A third theory is aimed at Kenneth and Irene Dudley, who were arrested in 1961 for the neglectful treatment of their children. Mr and Mrs Dudley worked at a carnival, and would travel with it up and down the east coast of the United States. Law enforcement uncovered their evil acts when police discovered the body of their neglected, malnourished, and beaten seven-year-old daughter. Instead of burying her, the Dudleys had wrapped her body in a blanket and dumped her carelessly in a wooded area of Virginia. 
Eventually, police discovered at least seven of the Dudley's ten children had died of malnutrition, and none of them had received a proper burial. It sounds similar to the way that the boy in the box had been discovered, but investigators questioning the Dudleys about their activities in the 50s determined that they were not connected to the boy in the box. Regardless, they saw justice for the evils they'd inflicted on their poor children. There are more theories floating around. That the boy was raised as a girl by parents that didn't want him, that he may have been the victim of a kidnapping as a baby, or that he was a refugee from Europe who had been abandoned once the family stopped wanting him. You need only punch the boy in the box into Google to see a swathe of theories, but one thing is for certain, that this case has gone cold, and that it officially remains unsolved to this day. What makes it even worse, for me at least, is that we'll never even know his name. We talk a lot about the unmentioned, those of us who slip through the societal cracks, who are resigned to the shadows of history without a name or age. The disappeared, the vanished, and those taken too soon. Usually they're given only a number, or something along the lines of John or Jane Doe, a name that isn't a name. The boy in the box was originally buried in a pauper's grave, but in 1998, his body was exhumed so that investigators could take DNA from him. His body was reburied at Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia, which donated a large plot for it and a lovely, respectful coffin, headstone, and funeral service. It's a little comforting, at least, to know that the boy was finally shown the respect and care he so rightfully deserved, even if it did come some 50 years too late. But what's your belief, dear listener? Who do you believe was so terrible and vile to deal with the boy in such a fashion? Do you side with one of the theories we've mentioned here, or do you have your own that I have not spoken of? As always, I'm interested to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to me at Twitter or email. Before we pull ourselves from the quagmire of sadness and crawl slowly to today's cryptid of the week, I'll mention a few special shoutouts for this episode. To everyone listening at home in the dark, illuminated only by the light of your computer screen. To anyone who's eagerly watching the minute hand of the clock tick down, and to everyone named Mike, you all have our special shoutout for this episode. After such a miserable topic, it feels only reasonable that the cryptid of the week should be something a little more… light-hearted. So, the cryptid we'll discuss today is the small, the fluffy, the horned rabbit himself, the Wolpertinger. Imagine for a moment that you're hiking through the Bavarian Alpine forests. Sweeping woods of brown and green, of spruce, beech, and fir, the dense, dark forests are a frequent setting for German folktales, and it's easy to see why. These forests are the origin of fairies, of witches, and other nefarious monsters. More regular threats exist, of course. Packs of wolves roam the countryside, as do lynxes and the more dangerous brown bear. If you wander off the beaten path and into the deep forests, it's easy to get lost, so you take a moment to reorient yourself. You perch on the side of a rocky outcrop looking over a beautiful vista before you, a valley covered in a blanket of green trees that ends at a crystal blue lake. It's the sort of picture that classical painters would die for, so you can think of no better area to take a little time to savour it. You withdraw a map and a little snack from your backpack and get comfortable. 
As you eat your protein-rich hiking food, you look frequently between the map and your surroundings to figure out exactly where you are. The birds are tweeting, the wind is gently rustling the leaves around you, and everything is serene for a moment. But at some point, the bird song stops. A scattered flapping sounds the alarm as the birds around you take to the air, alerted to the presence of something, and for the moment, the forest is eerily quiet. Until you hear a twig snap, something rustles in the ground, and you look to where the sound originates, behind a few trees only a few feet away. Did wolves approach you somehow when you weren't looking? A lynx, perhaps, looking for a choice and unprepared meal? You freeze, a chill runs down your spine and the hair raises on the back of your neck. Fight or flight kicks in and you're ready to flee or meet whatever comes to you in an instant. Another scuffling as it draws closer, slowly closer until a rabbit hops into view. You exhale a long-held breath, almost wanting to laugh at your foolishness, but you don't want to startle your new furry companion. Something's off about your new friend though. For one, he's got horns? Small and twig-like antlers, like that of a very small stag. Teeny tiny fangs poke out of his mouth, pointing downwards. He also has strange and miniature owl-like wings, but despite them, he still walks upon the ground. The two of you stare at one another for what feels like a very long moment. You can see its little rabbit nose wiggling as it sniffs the air and assesses you. After a moment, it hops away rapidly, disappearing once more into the underbrush of the forest and off, leaving you somewhat unsure as to if this encounter actually happened or not. Regardless, you're certain that nobody would ever believe you, no matter how much you toned it down or described it in detail. It's something that will likely stay with you, and possibly a fantastical tale you could recount to a small child. You'll lean in and lower your voice to a stage whisper and tell them all about the day that Grandpa met the mythical Wolpertinger. The creature you've just met is an incredibly strange looking rabbit. While it has the body of a rabbit, it has antlers, wings, fangs, and sometimes other more strange characteristics. It's similar to the American jackalope and the Swedish skvada. Stuffed Wolpertingers are used to bait tourists into shops or into purchasing them, but they're always forgeries using the myth to drum up attention. It's not known just how deep the strangeness of this creature goes, if it has any peculiar dietary requirements, how it reproduces, if it's capable of flight, or if all these are just simple, strange mutations. The adorable monster, similar to many other cryptids, makes an appearance in many works of media. It appears in popular video games such as RuneScape and World of Warcraft, and is a popular creature feature in many fantasy movies. But what do you think, dear listener? Are the mixed appearances of this creature evidence that it exists, or is this all merely a trick of the mind, seeing things that aren't actually there? As always, I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on anything we've covered here today. Do you have a topic you want read on the air? A particular tale of terror, a cryptid investigated, or a spooky story you want recited? You can reach me with such at the email channelfm at gmail.com, or visit the account's Twitter, which is also at channelfm. I apologise once more for any stuffiness during this episode, but my seasonal allergies are killing me. That brings us to the end of this week's broadcast, but not before I bid you all adieu with a frightening fact. Have you ever heard about the serial killer named Richard Chase?
Nicknamed the Vampire of Sacramento, he killed six people over a month between 1977 and 1978. He was named such because he drank his victims' blood and cannibalized their remains, but this isn't the fact of the day. The fact is how he chose his victims. Chase killed his first victim in a drive-by shooting, but the rest of his murders only occurred because the victim didn't lock the doors to their house. To Chase, locked doors were a sign that he was not welcome, so he would leave and go about his business. But an unlocked door meant that he was welcome to come inside and do as he pleased. So, have you locked your doors today, dear listener? Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Channel FM, signing off. The songs used in this episode are titled Morning Song, Long Note 2, and Mesmerize. They are made by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is incompetech.com and he makes brilliant music. Give him a click and a listen.